All right, let's jump in, and we're going to be in John 20 today. If you want to turn there, you can. I'll also have the text on the screen behind me, but we'll, we'll start not in John 20. We'll start with my two boys, which is always a great place to start. I'm trying to teach my boys how to ride a bike right now, and it's uh, not going entirely well. And uh, for example, let me show you this video. This was a couple months back when Noble's on a Strider bike. That's a bike without pedals, and you can just see how, how it went. Let's watch this. Ooh. Yeah, it didn't go that well. That's how most of our bike rides end up these days. Noble has graduated onto a bike with pedals, and his brother's on a Strider bike now. So the other day, we're on a walk. Well, they're, they're riding their bikes, and I'm walking behind them because we're not going at a fast clip or anything. And so I'm, I'm walking behind them, and we pass this police officer who's sitting in his police car on the side of the road working on something in his car. And right as we pass the police car, Noble crashes. And it's just like a slow motion crash. He's fine. He's not injured, but he crashes. And so he's crying and he's upset. But what really upsets him is that his little brother then rides past him <laughs> and is now in front, right? And so logically, you would think like, no, we'll just get back on your bike and, and ride past your brother. But there's nothing logical when you're four, right? And so he just gets up, leaves his bike, sprints after his brother and punches him in the back. <laughs> And his brother falls over, and now they're both crying right there. And I look at the police officer, and he's just shaking his head like this. <laughs> as if to say, this is how it begins. I'll see these boys later, I'm sure, right? Like, like, you know, like teaching a kid to ride a bike is terrifying. And I think it's terrifying because it's this gradual letting go. You, you start with two hands on the bike. You know, you've got one hand on the handlebars while your kid's riding, and one hand on the seat. And then you eventually, you let go of the handlebars. And then eventually, when they're not looking, you let go of the seat. And the moment you let go of that seat, your child, whether they're four or five or however old, is still your baby, right? And your baby is suddenly coasting away from you. And there's nothing you can do to stop what's gonna happen next, right? Even if you're sprinting behind them, the crash is gonna happen too quickly for you to stop it. And then they're probably gonna punch their brother in the back, right? Like everything is just out of your control. The moment you let go of that seat, you are absolutely powerless. I got a call from a friend a couple weeks ago, and he had, he had been in a long-term relationship with a girl, and a few weeks before that, she had, she had ended that relationship. And he called me, and this is weeks later, and he said, Eric, every night I go to bed, I just lie in the dark thinking about that last conversation, just convinced that I could have said something that would have made her change her mind. What should I have said? He just feels so powerless. There was nothing he could have said. So powerless. I think that word powerless is the backdrop to John 20, which is the text we're in today. Because the whole of Jesus' life and ministry, he's acquired these disciples who are following along behind him, and they just cannot believe that Jesus will die. They just can't, they can't wrap their minds around that. And so suddenly when he is arrested and his death seems inevitable at that process, you know, at that moment, it starts this inevitable process. They just can't believe what's happening in front of them. And that, in fact, Peter can't believe it so much that he draws his sword and tries to fight it, but he can't fight it, right? The death of Jesus is inevitable. His sword is proved useless. And so before we know it, Mary Magdalene and the others who are following Jesus, they find themselves at the foot of the cross looking up as Jesus is breathing his last. And there was absolutely nothing they could do. 
They're totally powerless at that moment. And we pick up with Mary three days later. Jesus has died. He's in the tomb, okay? We pick up with Mary three days later. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. What do you, what do you want to say to Mary right now? Because you're watching this unfold. What do you want to say to her? I think John's actually doing something pretty clever here because the way the story is told, you and I have a good feeling that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that he's not in the tomb anymore. And that's why his body's not there. Right? It's kind of like watching a movie where, where you know the secret that nobody else in the movie knows, right? And you just want to pound the TV because they're making foolish decisions. Like here, you just want to grab Mary and shake her and say, honey, he's resurrected, right? That's why he's not here. You just have this impulse to tell her. And I kept thinking about, why do I feel that way as I read this story? And I don't feel that way with everybody else I meet. You know, is it that I think the resurrection is good news in some situations and not all? You know, like it makes Mary's situation better. You know, this is how you explain an empty tomb, Mary. He's resurrected. But does it not make everything better? I don't know. A few years ago, I was uh, picking up a friend of Lindsay and mine. He's a, he's a young boy. He's about 16 now. At the time, he was about 13. He's got a really tough home life. There's a history of drug abuse and addiction, incarceration in his home. And so every once in a while, I'll just come and hang out with us. So I picked him up, and he's got this big grin on his face when I pick him up. And he says, I did something for my mama. I say, well, what'd you do? What'd you do for your mom? He says, I registered for PCH. PCH. Sorry, I registered for PCH. And I said, PCH, what is, what's that? And he said, you know, public house clearing. Public house clearing. And I said, public house clearing piece. Do you mean publisher's clearing house? He said, yeah, that's it. I registered for publisher's clearing house and they're gonna bring us a big check. They're gonna knock on our door with a big check and man, we need it. I said, you know, those things are really hard to win. He said, my grandmama's been saying the same thing. She says she's been registering us for things like that since I was a kid and we haven't got anything. But I just got this feeling, Eric, I just got this feeling We're going to win. I just know it. And at that moment, I wanted more than anything else in the world to get in that check. And I felt so powerless, right? I think our powerlessness is a slap in the face, and we confront it every day. I worked for a professor who used to say that the whole world is about power, right? Some people have it, and everybody else wants it. And the truth is, we often find ourselves in that, other, that latter category of not having power, but to take enough time and eventually it'll be proven that even those who think they have power don't, right? Suddenly you wake up one morning and you realize you're not holding on to the seat anymore and you don't know when you let go. I think that's how our powerlessness confronts us. It jars us. And I think that's what it's doing to Mary here in this text as she's outside the tomb. In fact, if you fast forward a little bit, she goes and she gets Peter and John and brings them to the tomb. And then we come back after they have left and she's still at the tomb in the darkness. And this is where we find her. Mary stood outside the tomb crying, crying. I mean, she's so overcome by this event that has spiraled out of her control 
that in a moment she'll see two angels inside the tomb, but she's so overcome she doesn't even realize she's looking at angels. And then somebody's talking behind her, turns out it's the risen Jesus, and she's so upset she doesn't even look up when that person asks her what's wrong. She just says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll get him. You know, even in the case of a missing body, Mary Magdalene thinks it's up to her to control this thing, to fix it. But she can't. She's absolutely powerless. Don't skip over that feeling. You know, the feeling you're probably feeling in your gut as you think about everything in your life that you're not in control of. I think that feeling is the key to the door of the gospel. It's like the password that gets you in to this expansive world of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Because if you cannot accept everything that you are not in control of, right, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not that good of news for you. If you're still holding on to this illusion that you're in control. But the minute you admit how powerless you are, the resurrection of Jesus Christ takes on this new and amazing meaning. Because if Jesus Christ was not resurrected, then we are fools. You know that the Easter would fall on April Fool's Day this year is fitting. Paul talks about that. He says the message of the cross, when Paul talks about the cross, he's always also talking about the resurrection. It's like two acts in the same play. He says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And do you realize it is one or the other? It's either foolish or it's powerful. It cannot be both. It's either one or the other. So that brings us to Peter and John. Let's, let's pick up back in 20 in verse, the end of verse three. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. We think that other disciple is John and he's talking about himself as the narrator. Both are running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He just wanted all of history to know he's a little bit faster than Peter, right? Like, just want to throw that in. Okay, it's he, he bent over, John, and looked in the strips of linen that were lying there, but did not go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen, and finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside, and he saw and believed. And they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead, but then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Where they were staying. If you'll leave that up for just a second, you'll notice in verse 9, it's not totally clear they fully understood the resurrection the way that we understand the resurrection today, 2,000 years later. Like, there's still some question in their mind. But there at the end of verse 8, you have this really powerful line, he saw, he saw, and believed, it says. He saw and believed. And you have to know that these two guys know that this moment, as they're peering into this dark tomb, that this is the moment on which all of our lives are hanging. Because either right then and there, it's proven that this whole Jesus business that they've been preaching, that they've been witnessing to, that all of that's foolish or else, they've got to accept that there must be some kind of power unimagined by them before that was on display in that tomb. Uh, I've, I've shared before Ron Wade, who you heard earlier, who did our prayer for communion. Ron and I get to go into the uh, local prison facility 
every Wednesday and do a Bible study. I've shared some about this before. And we, the way we do that, Hope, it's part of Hope Works programming. The programming runs 13 weeks, and then we'll get a new group of guys. And so every 13 to 14 weeks, we go in there, and we, earning, we earn their trust, basically. Kind of, kind of put ourselves out there so that they can trust us, so that we can point them to the word of Jesus, and they might be inspired by it. Okay. And the way we do that is we study the Sermon on the Mount for the 13 weeks, because we think this is what Jesus has to say about living your life, and we think it's a good thing for these guys to look at. Okay, so this is the pitch. Like, let me let, me let you in on the secret. This is, this is the whole pitch inside the prison. We go in there and we say, how many of you have lost somebody you love? And every hand goes up. How many of you have lost somebody you love? Every hand goes up. One of the guys was let out last week on a Thursday for about half the day because his brother, who was 25, was robbed and killed. So he was let out to go to his funeral, 25 years old. One of the guys, he's got tattoos up his neck. He's got tattoos all over his face. And he raised his hand. And I said, well, who'd you lose? And he said, I lost my two-year-old daughter in a house fire. Like, you begin to look at those guys differently when they start sharing that. So we say, how many of you have lost somebody you love? Every hand in the room goes up. And then we say, what is it that stinks about death? And there's a lot of things that stink about death. And they'll name those things off. But what it ultimately comes down to every time we do the class what stinks about death is separation. You know, being separated from the one you love, the one you love separated from their dreams and aspirations. Separation is what stinks about death. So then we say, what is it that stinks about prison? And they say it like that, separation, separation. And so then we say what we don't have to say because they're already getting it. We lay it out though. Okay, so what you're experiencing in here, locked up, is a taste of death. And so if there was somebody who overcame death, I'd want to know what he has to say. That's the whole pitch. I mean, that's it. It's pretty simple, right? And and the truth is, that's my pitch in the prison, and that's my pitch to you guys. I mean, because the separation you're feeling as a result of death and sorrow and grief and your sin, the way that your sin is ruining the relationships around you, you know what you're tasting there? Death. And so if there was somebody who was dead and then not dead, I'd want to know about it, right? Like, I'd want to know about that power. That's it. That's the pitch. A few years ago, I was sitting in my office, and my office overlooks the parking lot out in that direction. And I see this car pull in, and Highland member Buddy Dover, I don't know if some of y'all know Buddy. Many of you probably do. Buddy died recently of cancer. This was about two or three years ago. Buddy passed. And he gets out of the car, this is in November, and he is as sick as he can be. He's in his last weeks of life. He's frail, but he lost all his weight and lost his hair, and it's cold outside, and he's got this little beanie just sticking to the top of his head with stray hair just shooting out. And he is sick as he can be, but he's got these four Thanksgiving feet of family sacks, which are the sacks we fill for families in need. And he's just dragging them in like this. He's just barely walking. He's dragging those sacks in so he can deliver them for some families to have Thanksgiving. And at that moment, it occurred to me, if Jesus was not resurrected, then what you're doing, buddy's just foolish, man. It's foolish. But that's the thing. Either the resurrection changes all things, makes all things better, or it makes nothing better, right? I mean, either it's foolishness or it is the greatest power that has ever been unleashed in this world, You see that? So as you're standing there with Peter and John and you're peering into this tomb, 
I mean, what do you see? What do you see? Either we're talking about the greatest hoax in the history of the world, or else you have to accept that a power greater than you has done something for you that you couldn't do for yourself. And I'll, I'll tell you, like, we could have a long conversation about the defense of the resurrection. What I would say, just in brief about that, is I think there is better historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than much of what you read in your history books. Like, it is more well-attested than many other events that you read about and that are taught in school, okay? I can point you to those things. What I would just do is point you to Peter, who's standing here outside this empty tomb. Do you remember the last time we saw Peter? Okay, the last time we saw Peter, he was denying Jesus three times. You remember that? Before the rooster crows. And he's denying Jesus while Jesus is still alive, which is to say, even though he had seen Jesus perform many miracles and do many miraculous things, he was still not convinced that Jesus was worth, worth dying for, right? But now Peter is standing outside this empty tomb, and a few verses later, he's in a room huddled up with disciples where Jesus, the risen Jesus, will appear. That same guy who denied Jesus three times will, in a few years' time, be tortured and killed by being hung upside down on a cross because he didn't think he was worthy to be hung right side up like his risen Savior. Okay, think about the character arc of that guy. How does one guy go from denying Jesus to being willing to be tortured and die for him unless he saw something, right? Like, unless he saw the risen Jesus Christ. It doesn't, I mean, ultimately though, it doesn't matter what Peter saw, it matters what you see, right? As you're peering into that tomb, you know this is all a bunch of foolishness where there is a power that has been unleashed in this world, unlike any other power the world's ever seen. Which is to say, you may be powerless, but there's somebody who's not. There's someone who's not powerless. That's Easter, that's it. I mean, there's someone who's not powerless. Mary, she's sitting by the tomb. Peter and John are gone, and she's sitting there crying and this stranger behind her asks her how she's doing, and she says, you know, tell me where you've put him, and I'll go get him. And then Jesus, who's the stranger, says to her, Mary. He calls her by name. Mary turns around, she sees him, and she cries out, Rabbi, which means teacher, and she grabs him. We know that because Jesus says, oh, don't, don't hold on to me, Mary. I got places to go. Don't hold on. She just grabs him. She's so thankful to see him. It's a really beautiful and fitting end, I think, to the story of the resurrection. This is how it goes. God raised Jesus from the dead, and then Jesus went looking for his disciples. And when he found them, they were still in the dark. Mary's still sitting there outside the tomb. The disciples in the next scene are huddled up behind these locked doors, afraid to even light a candle for fear the authorities will come through there. But the good news of the resurrection is that even the darkness is as light to him, that if you knock, the door will be opened, right? That the resurrection doesn't make some things better, it makes all things better, because if there is a God who is capable of beating death, then there is no darkness, no depth that God cannot draw you out of, right? You know, in this world where you and I constantly come face to face with our powerlessness, the resurrection proves there is a God who is not bound by any of that. That there is no fear, no sin, no death, no sorrow, no anxiety. That those things are powerless compared with the all-surpassing power that is from God and not from us, right? What I want you to hear this Easter, right, is that you don't need to be better. That's not what I want you to leave here thinking. I don't want you to leave here thinking I need to, to love more or sin less, and all those things would be good, and I recommend it. But all I want you to hear 
All I want you to hear is that the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is on your side and looking for you, right? And it does not matter the depth of your darkness. It does not matter the locked doors you're hiding behind. God is expecting that, right? He has been finding people in darkness since Mary. He has been finding people behind locked doors since John and Peter. He is all capable, all powerful. The light of the world is looking for you. That's it, that's it, right? The light of the world is looking for you, right? Yeah, praise God, praise God. It's so hot in this suit, y'all, I'm about to die. <laughs> All right, listen, if, if, you, if you don't know the power of God, if that power is not working in your life, you know, we would love to share that power with you today. The way to do that is to be baptized into water, which we could do this morning. It's in that baptistry where you are lowered down into your death as Jesus was lowered into the tomb. And the same power which raised God from the dead, which raised Jesus from the dead, then raises you from the tomb, right? And you are raised to walk in newness of life, Paul says. Paul also says the kingdom of God is not about talk, it's about power in 1 Corinthians 4. And that's what we see on display, and we'd love to see that on display in your life today. Let me end with a prayer over you. These are the words of Paul that he prayed over the church in Ephesus, and it seems fitting this morning as we think about the power that we see at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'll end with that, and then Brescian will lead us in song. Let's pray. God, I pray that the eyes of your heart, that these people here, that their hearts, may be enlightened in order that you may know that the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Praise God. Amen. Let's stand. There is love that came for us, humble to a sinner's cross. You broke my shame.